Hi there, I'm Gavin Crawford. I'm a writer, an actor, and a comedian. And for the last eight or nine years, I have been navigating life with my mother's increasing dementia. Has it been sad? Yeah. Has it been funny? Also, yeah. That's what my brand new podcast series, Let's Not Be Kidding, is about. It's the true story of my life as a comedian, my mom, and dementia. Let's Not Be Kidding, with me, Gavin Crawford. A new seven-part series from CBC Podcasts, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. This has happened to you, whether or not you realized it at the time. The easiest example I can give you is while you were shopping for experiences, for vacations or concerts or sporting events. You understand by now that depending on how many seats or hotel rooms or packages are left, you're likely going to pay a different price. So that's where this practice began a long time ago, in an earlier age of the internet. But it very much did not end there. Since then, dynamic or algorithmic pricing has been applied to much of what you purchase online. And it's not used simply to adjust cost based on supply and demand. The best way I can put the problem that this practice is trying to solve for a company is like this. With everything I know about this person and this product, what is the absolute maximum price that I can charge them and they will still pay? And it's really the everything I know about this person part where it can get sinister. So, if you've ever noticed that you're sometimes quoted two different prices at different times or in different places for the same item, this is why. If you've ever paid a different price than a friend for the same item, this is why. And unless something changes, these algorithms are only going to get smarter and much better at their jobs. What do we want to do about that? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Colin Horgan is a writer and a communications professional. He's based in Toronto, and he examined algorithmic pricing for the walrus, or I guess uh, what many people are familiar with as dynamic pricing, right, Colin? Actually, personalized pricing, but dynamic pricing is related, so we can talk about that. But yeah, mostly personalized pricing, slight difference. We'll get into the difference for sure. In the meantime, just take us back maybe to... I'm not sure if it was the exact start of this, but to uh, what the Wall Street Journal reported about orbits back in 2012, so more than a decade ago. Yeah, in uh, in 2012, it again, like as you say, it may not be the first instance, but the report of it was kind of the, one of the markers in time. Orbits is a travel website, um, and the Wall Street Journal reported in August of 2012 that that website had found that Apple users tended to spend more per night on hotels than Windows users. Hmm. And so they were starting to show Apple users slightly different and sometimes more expensive travel options than Windows users that were coming to its site. Again, not the first, but it was one of those moments where people realized that the data that they were giving a website was affecting how they shop. 
And how have we come to define this practice? I mentioned dynamic. You mentioned personalized. I'm Ultimately, it's, it's all done by machines. It's algorithmic, right? Yeah. So there is a fairly specific difference between personalized pricing and dynamic pricing. Hmm. Personalized pricing is when a price changes depending on who you are or the data that a company or retailer or a seller has about you specifically as a person. Dynamic pricing, which people know from things like Uber or Ticketmaster or airline tickets, which have been doing it, the airlines have been doing it the longest, is based on a kind of mass demand and supply thing. So it doesn't really matter who you are personally, you're just kind of competing against a narrowing supply, which pushes the price up. So the the fewer tickets there might be, the more expensive they become, or the fewer Uber rides there are available, the more expensive yours will be. Personalized pricing is the way that we're talking about it here. Also, you can divide that within a couple of, uh, sort of a couple of ways. Sometimes you could technically say personalized pricing is like if you're a student or a senior, you're getting a discount. But again, that's putting you in a sort of larger group. So it doesn't affect you personally, but it's because of your part of a, a, a like a, a larger group of people. The, the thing that's been more that this Orbitz example sort of, sort of heralded was this period that we've kind of now entered, which is when you go to a website and let's say go to a retailer like Amazon or others, there is a chance that they would be able to know enough information about you based on your previous you know, purchasers or your cookies in your browser that it could, if, if they want, impact the final price that you would pay at the till. This sounds like something that could create a whole host of problems, obviously, and issues of fairness or discrimination. Mm-hmm. But, but first, you kind of lay out in your piece a best case scenario for how this technology could be beneficial to both sides of the buyer-seller equation. What does this look like in a theoretically perfect world? Yeah, like there's a couple of goals here. One is obviously they want to maximize profits, but they also want to expand their buyer base, right? So theoretically, um, dynamic pricing, if they know that people are unwilling to pay a certain price based on the information that they have, they could adjust the price somewhat to make it more accessible for people who may not be able to otherwise pay for something. And these, this is not, I don't think, you know, you wouldn't notice it as like major differences in price, but I'm giving it, I'm giving a very hypothetical example. You may notice a few dollar difference theoretically between two people. Mm-hmm. That's the theory anyway. Okay. Now, as you mentioned, we've seen these uh, things proliferate over the last number of years. What have we seen about how it works in reality? Um, there's some studies on this that have been done that show the actual results that you cite. Yeah, they're a little bit weird because, you know, the, it's not that easy to track, for mm. one thing, is, is sort of the subtext of it. But again, there's some evidence to show that pricing algorithms, which is what the companies would have to use in order to be able to do this, they can learn from each other in a weird way. And that like, if one company were to reduce its price, the other algorithms would adjust the other seller's prices to sort of meet that. And in theory, that would say like, well, you're going to race to the bottom and everything will get cheaper. But what ends up actually happening, according to some researchers, is that nobody lowers their price because it's not worth it to like have that race. So the prices actually stay more or less 
the same. Right. But what that also entails or suggests is that there's unintentional collusion to some degree occurring between the programs that you know would be unpredictable and it is not necessarily people working to do it, but you end up with everything kind of costing the same instead of this idea that in some instances it would be cheaper. It just ends up being always the same price for everybody. Um, and then the other thing is that like, you know, if you go to a place like Amazon, I don't know if you've been on Amazon recently, but this site has been, you know, there's a sort of proliferation of drop shipping and people who use programs to adjust their prices, you know, so hundreds of times an hour mm-hmm. um, in some cases. And, you know, the people who are able to sell the most and get the highest reviews and the most reviews typically become the highest rated or highest ranked products on a website like that. So right. if you've got a program running that is adjusting your prices constantly and people are leaving reviews, um, you end up being one of the top you know, sellers. And then instead of having this website with thousands of options, actually your options kind of get narrowed down to a few dozen or fewer. And these are all because these are the people who are most aggressively using technology to adjust prices quickly so that they're the ones who can match where people are at fast as, you know, it, it could it could end up actually narrowing your choices in, in a way. You know, there are some examples of people in certain neighborhoods paying more for uh, the same good than somebody in a different neighborhood. When it starts to, to get down to that level, that's when, uh, to me for sure, but also I think to, to a lot of listeners, it can feel a little creepy and possibly discriminatory. Yeah, there was a ProPublica piece in 2015 that I cite in the the Walrus piece that they found that prices for the Princeton Reviews online SAT tutoring package was different for depending on what zip code you lived in. And unexpectedly, what the upshot of that was, was that where uh, the prices were higher was where there was a higher density of um, Asian uh, Americans versus non-Asian Americans. So yeah, again, like a lot of algorithmic decision-making, a lot of these results aren't necessarily like fully understandable um, mm-hmm. because the computer just kind of, I don't mean to suggest that it has free will or whatever, but like... But it's opaque. Yeah, it makes quote-unquote decisions that aren't necessarily baked in to begin with, but it's just reacting to what it's been tasked with doing. Do we know how widespread this practice is and if there are any regulations governing it? I mean, you mentioned Amazon, obviously the world's biggest retailer, but how far down does this go? Yeah, to be clear that like when I say Amazon, just so they're not (laughs) annoyed with me, but like it would be individual sellers who might be able to use this. Yeah, not the platform itself. Yeah. And you would get that in you know, any number of places. I think, you know, the EU has done a study on it and as has the UK government. And they've had difficulty finding, like really coming to ground on actually how prevalent it is. Mm -hmm. But they are concerned in both cases. And I think most people would agree that the concern is, as I've laid out, you know, that it doesn't actually give full transparency for people when they are making a purchase. Like you would go into a store, presumably, right? And you would know that you're going to pay the same price as literally anyone else in the store with you. Right. Theoretically, you do not know that when you're online. And the reason you don't know that, which is really the important thing, you don't necessarily know what information a retailer has gathered about you 
that could be impacting the decisions that they're making about what they're selling you. And again, I want to stress that like, this does not mean necessarily that when you see a price online, you are paying something different than your neighbor or, you know, your husband or wife or whatever. Mm -hmm. It just means that it could happen. It means you don't know that you're not. You don't know. And the problem, reason you don't know is because there's no, there's very little transparency about what information they're gathering about you. That is the real crux of this issue. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. Why aren't we coming up with ways to regulate this to make it fair or at least to disclose uh, what's going on? Yeah, I think the second part of that is probably the easiest way to do it. Like to regulate retailers at the point of sale is actually very difficult and would raise a lot of challenges. A lot of people yelling about communism. Yeah, that and also, you know, like think about how many things there are that you need to regulate. Right. It's just it's unmanageable for any administrative body, right? But the way you could technically do it is you could focus on the amount of data that somebody would give over when they travel through the internet in the first place. So for instance, when you went online, if you were to go to a store and there was a pop-up that said, you know, would you like this website to know X, Y, Z about you? It may impact the price you pay. Maybe you'll say no, But maybe you have the choice then to say like, yeah, because maybe I'll pay less. But at least you would be able to have the knowledge before you get there that the information that you're bringing along with you when you travel online, such as like cookies or the the previous websites you were at, the previous things you've purchased. Mm -hmm. If you know that up front, it brings a bit more transparency to the transaction itself. Right. So really, it's as I said earlier, the, the the personal data issue here is really the kind of crux of this one. It's that people are very annoyed at a lot of things in terms of pricing, including like how expensive Taylor Swift tickets are. And it's easy to kind of point fingers at the computers. That's the medium through which we're kind of seeing this occur. Hmm. But the real issue is, is, is like our personal data not really being ours. The ability for retailers or platforms or whatever to just scrape basically as much as they want, that eventually impacts the sort of the world that we see and the decisions that we make, and including in these cases, the things that we buy. How did we let that happen in the first place, where we kind of just decided as online shopping ramped up that it was going to be fine if all the retailers that we see know what we've purchased from other retailers and the price and and what income bracket we might be in and if we own a car and like, I I mean, I've seen some of these reports, they can get really detailed based on uh, how many databases you're plugged into. How did we let any of this happen? I mean, it's the same, it's the same reason we, you know, never really regulated Facebook and Mm -hmm. we never really put much thought into what kind of an internet we were building, right? Like, we similarly, you know, allowed all these disruptive platforms to take over like very key parts of our society, including housing and transportation for a time. Now there's some pushback, but along with that came a kind of a readiness innately to just allow all of these things to occur 
because the kickback for us was convenience, right? Right. So it's extremely convenient for us to go on Amazon or any other retailer and just buy things from home. And now it's just kind of the way we do it. But initially, you know, we wind the clock back 15 years or so, we were very willing as a society to get on board with the ease of it all. Yeah. Not realizing at the time how much information we were kind of giving up for nothing. And I don't want to suggest that we're like, that, you know, the sort of data is the new oil kind of thing, but just that our personal data is not ours mm. in, a, in a real way, in the way that we've cr- constructed the internet, especially in Canada. It's different in the EU, right. but certainly in North America, it's not. The thing I kept coming back to while uh, preparing questions for you was when Apple brought in their new security system that allows you to opt out of ad tracking mm-hmm. on social media stuff, right? And and that's a big sell. I mean, that's a big selling point for Apple. Can you apply that beyond simply apps and and to uh, all internet access on an Apple device at large? I think that the selling feature aspect of that for Apple is, I mean, I like to think that they're very, you know, altruistic. And and as an Apple user, I am very pleased that I can opt out of certain things. The way that a, the private industry may do it, or like retailers, for instance, would be, yeah, as a, as a way to sort of suggest that they're looking out for your privacy. However, that also means that they're not able to collect as much information about you and then it's more difficult to sell ads against your you know your traffic so is it really of benefit to them in the end i don't know mm-hmm. you know the ad supported internet is really part of the issue here right like people need to make money not just by selling things but by having people just browse their website and sign up for their mailing lists and the information that they need in order to be able to sell ads and target things to you on say instagram or whatnot comes from you know, from from you, and 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 if without it, the businesses suffer. Right. So right now, you know, there's a consumer bill. The federal government updates the Canada's Competition Act in 2022 in the budget. It didn't deal with algorithmic or you know personalized pricing directly, but they are you know aware that there are concerns about it, and the Competition Bureau currently is not you know really equipped to deal with it. So whether there's an opportunity to now you know, create a new piece of legislation or amendments to the Competition Act or the, or the Consumer Bill that I think believe, I believe is going through Parliament at the moment would be the best way to do it. And as I said, I think, you know, introducing some element of required transparency so that people have control over their data would be one way. But, you know, I don't mean to ramble here, but that, that, that opens up a huge can of worms in and of itself. How so? For people to have control in a, in a real sense over the data that they their personal data when they go online would sort of rethink the internet to some degree. The GDPR legislation in the EU is, a, is an interesting start. And I think a lot of countries around the world look to that as a standard to emulate. I think probably Canada's, Canada's in the same boat. But we just had an instance with, I think it was C18, where the platforms went toe-to-toe with the government over what people could see and with the control of the data that they were giving. like, And it was just geographical. And that went to weird places, right? That conversation just took such a strange left turn toward what media is, what people see, like everything. It went bananas. Hmm. And my sense of it is that I would love to have this conversation in a rational environment, but it strikes me that it would be very difficult to have. And I, w- I would sort of look to the government for for guidance and real serious thinking about 
here are the things we need to address and here's how we're going to do them mm-hmm. and get something together very quickly that we can work from instead of, hey, what should we do? And then have chaos erupt. I'm going to assume, and this is my last question, but I, I will assume for a moment that that uh, swift, well-thought-out regulation does not immediately appear on the scene. What does the future hold for this kind of technology? I mentioned earlier artificial intelligence, I'm sure, has uh, the capability to make this algorithmic pricing even better, or at least to make it way stranger. How how serious could things get here? I mean, a chat GPT or a BARD-style AI Um, like large language model or whatever, part of the future of that is going to be search engines, right? Like that you would say to a search engine, I need to find the best, I don't know, kettle. And it will say, hey, I found this great deal on this thing that meets your requirements. It's still using your data. It's all the same. It's just, it's sort of like that program would likely be able to scour websites in a fraction of a second compared to what you would be able to do in an afternoon looking for the same item for the same price. So I can only imagine that if that's the way things go, uh, more and more people will use uh, price you know, algorithms to compete so that they basically the, the AI is talking to the AI and they're deciding on the right price for you. And you're completely removed from the process, even more so than you are now, would be my guess. It's always been my dream to be completely removed from the buying process. <laughs> so, Well, you know, you can just Lie down in a dark room and be completely removed from things anytime you want, if you like. I could, but I have a job. Um, (laughs) Colin, thank you so much for this conversation. Uh, It's always fascinating to explore uh, just what various companies know about us and how they use that. Terrifying, but, uh, but illuminating. Colin Horgan, writing in The Walrus. That was The Big Story. For more, you can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. A reminder, we've gotten some great questions about money from you folks over the past week. Uh, We're always looking for more, especially if you've got a personal problem you're willing to talk to our staff about as we try to uncover how we can make episodes about money more effective for the listeners. You can reach us, if you have one, by finding us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. By sending us an email, that address is hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca or just by calling and leaving a message, 416-935-5935. Joseph Fish is the lead producer of The Big Story. Robin Simon is also a producer. Our sound design this week was done by Robin Edgar, by Christy Chan, and by Christian Prohome. Mary Jubrin is our digital editor. Diana Kay is our manager of business development. Stephanie Phillips is our showrunner. I am Jordan Heath-Rawlings, your host and executive producer. Have an amazing weekend. Take some time to observe the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation on Monday. We'll be doing that as well. And we'll talk Tuesday. <laughs>